My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Um, good to be with you guys again. If you're new this morning, you picked a super fun week to be here. Um, we're uh, in the middle of a sermon series uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's found in uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the, some of the most famous words that Jesus has ever said. And even if you have never read the Bible, you have probably heard a lot of the words that are found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've said uh, before that despite being some of the most well-known and the most quoted, it is by far and away some of the most misunderstood and most misused words of Jesus. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're probably going to tackle these, like this is up there for not like number one or number two on most misused verses in all of the Bible this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter seven, do not judge. Everyone has some experience with those words or some variation on them. Uh, maybe like me, you've just completed eating an entire extra large pizza by yourself and your friend kind of looks over at you and you say, don't judge, right? Just step off, right? Or uh, maybe you've seen it, uh, that statement on a, a bumper sticker, or maybe you've seen it uh, on, a, on a, a sign at a parade. Maybe uh, you've had uh, someone, uh, maybe you've said those words to someone else that you felt like was being judgmental towards you. Or uh, maybe like uh, my wife and I, you've had a, a close friend or a family member uh, direct those words at you as they walked out of your life. We all come into this passage this morning with experiences and beliefs and opinions. And for some of us, those experiences and opinions, they come at a distance. They're more so observations from afar. Uh, but some of us come and our experience with these words is intensely close and it's personal and it's often painful. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that this morning as, as we dive in and I just want to ask that wherever you're at uh, this morning, I want to invite all of us to put ourselves under the authority of God's word, not to read our own understanding into these words, but rather our own experiences into reading and determining what they mean, but, but rather I want us to seek to carefully study God's word so that uh, we might uh, allow Jesus' words themselves to direct how we think and act and live. And so uh, let's look at our passage this morning and see the, the context that we find itself in and see what Jesus is really getting at here. And so let me read the passage and then we'll pray. Matthew 7, 1 through 6, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, nor throw, to per nor throw your pearls to pigs, for if you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Let's pray. God, this is a... Yeah, just, man, there's just a lot going on here this morning. We bring a lot of uh, our own experiences or, or a lot of times just our baggage into this passage. And God, we just ask humbly that you'd, that you'd help us see you and you see your words rightly this morning. God, I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. 
man, there's nothing good that's going to come of this if you're not the one that's speaking through me. And God, I just pray that you would free us from our preconceptions about what these words mean and rather you'd allow us to, just by your spirit, to see rightly what you're trying to say to us, Jesus, and, and what you were trying to say to the people that you spoke these words to thousands of years back. God, I'm so thankful that your word's not just like a, a dead old historical book, but it is incredibly timeless and timely. And so I, God, I just pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning and you'd speak through me regarding your word. That would result in um, yeah, just our good, our growth, and uh, it would lead to your glory. So we pray these things in your good name. Amen. Um, now I just feel like God's really, I feel like I've just been learning a lot this week in my prep. And God's really been at work challenging my own heart kind of as I've studied and, and prepared to teach. And so I trust that that'll be uh, not just for my good, but for yours as well. Um, as I've prayed and prepped, uh, my heart for us this week is that as we read these words, we wouldn't see in this passage a call to uh, blind acceptance of everything or a call to disengagement in our relationships in the, with our friends or the world around us. But, and I pray that we wouldn't that neither would we see a, a justification for abrasive or uncompassionate interactions with other. Instead, my heart and my prayer for us this week is that, that we would see that freedom from judgmentalism comes when we first see the magnitude of our own sin and our need for grace. It's because when we see our own need for grace and our own sin, it produces in us a humble and compassionate and discerning care for the good of others. See, Jesus isn't calling citizens of his kingdom to turn a blind eye to the actions and attitudes and behaviors of the world around us. Instead, he's, uh, instead he's asking us to address our own sin first so that we can compassionately join God in the redemptive work that he's doing. See, we, we want to naturally live in, in binary categories, it's just simpler to live that way. We just want to say, either you accept me completely or you judge me. We want to say that you either love me and you are tolerant of all the choices that I make, or you are intolerant and you despise me. It's just easier to live in these binary categories. But can we just be honest? Man, no healthy relationship looks like that. No healthy relationship works like that. No, no healthy relationship just blindly accepts someone as they are. I think uh, Rick Warren said it best. I've often thought of this quote over the years. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means you agree with everything and everything they believe or do. Both of those are nonsense. You do not have to compromise convictions in order to be compassionate. How? How do you do that? How do we live lives that are characterized by compassion and humility towards others as well as holding to convictions that we believe what about what the Bible says? And the answer is this. The answer is the gospel. It's always the gospel. If you've been to River City for more than any amount of time, you know that's always the answer. But I want to show you this morning why that's the answer. Why, the gospel is the thing that transforms our hearts and lives to engage in the world around us in a way that is foreign to the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of religion. You see, 
This morning, Jesus is going to lay out for us a pattern of life in his kingdom. And it neither advocates for liberalism or license, and it does not allow for religious hypocrisy. Instead, Jesus offers a way that is foreign to those other kingdoms. It's a gospel way of dealing and engaging with sin in our lives and in the lives of others. It's a way that's marked by humility and compassionate engagement rather than blind acceptment or engagement. It's a a way that is marked by self-awareness instead of self-righteousness. And so this morning, I want us to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? What does he actually mean? Those words get hurled around like they can mean anything to anyone. What do they really mean? You see, God's word doesn't just mean what we think it says or what we feel it means. Jesus said something. He meant something specific when he spoke. So we've got to find out, Jesus, what did you mean when you wrote this, when you said this? What did you mean? And then let's examine how Jesus reveals what the pattern of life in his kingdom looks like Because he's going to call out the wrong way to do it. But he's going to also show us the right way. I think no matter where you're at this morning, I think Jesus' words will disrupt your heart. And that they'll challenge you. Man, they've they've done that to me this week. So I just just want to pray just one more time as we dive into these words, because there's so much here. Um, So just join me as we just, I just want to pray once more. God, we need you. We need you to be the one that that reveals to our hearts what's true and what's not. God, I just ask mercifully that you do that. That you give us hearts that are soft and able to hear and respond to you. Yeah, God, we just need you. I need you this morning. Let me just pray these things in your good name. Amen. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Is Jesus really saying that we should never evaluate whether the actions or attitudes or behaviors of another person are right or wrong? There are many, many who would say that judge not, those words just need to be taken straight up as literally as they are. That the meaning is that Christians should never express an opinion about other people. And I just want to articulate, there's three reasons why that's not only an incorrect interpretation, that's actually impossible. And the first is, that just totally contradicts common sense. As one commentator writes, are we just to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs who never understand or, or under any circumstances whatsoever hold any opinions about what's right or wrong? Are we to say nothing about the rights or wrongs of oppression and evil that we see so abundantly in our world? Of course not. Secondly, it contradicts other verses in this very passage and throughout the Bible. In verse 6, Jesus is going to caution us to see some people as acting as pigs or dogs. In verses 15 and 16, we'll get in a few weeks, he calls us specifically to beware of false prophets and to evaluate what is true and what is false. That's not possible to do if we can never exercise judgment. If we can never evaluate what someone is saying and say, is this really right or is it wrong? Not just, is it right or wrong for me? And third, it's not possible to live that way. It is not possible to live without making judgments. We are constantly evaluating the actions and attitudes of people around us. But what most often happens is that we just choose to associate with people who share the same judgments as we do. I have a close friend and 
They say they talk about their churches. They just love their church. And he says, I love our church because there's no judgment at all. It's just very accepting. And what he he doesn't actually mean that that he doesn't actually mean that. He doesn't mean that there's no judgment at all. He just means that the values and judgments he holds most closely align with what that church teaches or believes. And because they align there, he feels connected and he feels like he's not being judgmental. I just read an article this week called The Bubble Effect and it was talking about how um, none of the news agencies predicted the, this last presidential election. And one of the reasons that um, this author talked about it is because um, just vastly disproportionately all of the news outlets are located in um, deeply uh, democratic cities and states, which is not wrong or bad or there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just as true. And the fact is, when you surround yourself with people who only believe what you think and, and think in the same ways as you do, it's an easy way to just believe that people who believe anything different either don't exist or are just ignorant fools. You see, this is the way that we do it. We just surround ourselves with people who think the same things that we do, and so we can avoid judgmentalism at the same time calling others deeply judgmental. This is true of the most liberal of people in the world. It is deeply true of the most religious as well. It's true of all of us. That's how we work. I think we can all agree judgmentalism is wrong. Hypocrisy and a spirit of criticalness is not healthy or right or good for any relationship at all. But Jesus is not saying that we can't make a judgment call on whether something is right or wrong. He's not telling us to blindly accept everything as neutral. Instead, he's telling us that we're not qualified to be the judge. Only God is. I don't often tell you about Greek words because you don't need to know them and you don't speak Greek. And our translations are very good. Um, but I just wanted to highlight something because I think it's important this morning. The Greek word that's translated judge here, it can mean a bunch of different things, but because of the context, it, it very clearly has the connotation and tone of, of do not be judgmental. It means do not adopt a critical spirit or a condemning attitude. The same word is translated twice again in Romans chapter 14 in the same meaning. Romans 14 reads, why then do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand with God before the judgment seat. Romans 14 and Matthew 7 here our pastors this morning are saying the same thing. Not only are we not to judge, but we are among those who are judged and will be judged with greater strictness ourselves if we dare to judge others. Romans chapter 2, Paul writing again on the same topic says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, judge, you who judge are doing the same things. Paul is saying, in your judging, you prove what you know is right. You prove that you know what's right and wrong, but you condemn yourself because you still do it. D.A. Carson healthily writes, the point of verses one and two is not that we should be moderate in our judging in order that others will be moderate towards us, but rather that we should completely abolish judgmental attitudes lest we ourselves stand utterly condemned before God. Because a judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon for it betrays an unbroken spirit 
What is he saying? He's saying the same thing as, as we've seen before in, in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. In chapter 6, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. What? Those verses aren't prescriptive, they're descriptive. We don't earn God's mercy or earn his forgiveness with our own mercy or forgiveness. No, the passage is saying your actions reveal what's true about you. If you're characterized by mercifulness and forgiveness, that reveals that you have been shown it, that you understand it, that you have been shown mercy, that you've been forgiven, that you've grasped it, that it's become true of you. But if you're characterized not by mercy and forgiveness, but judgmentalism and hypocrisy, that reveals that you have no idea what the gospel is. It proves it. It shows it. Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Man, if we don't love, it shows we've not been forgiven. The question is, do our attitudes and our actions towards other reveal that we know we've been loved by God, or does it prove we have no idea who he is? So Jesus is not telling us that we're never to evaluate or discern if something is right or wrong, but that we're not to condemn someone based on those things. This was so good, and one of the commentaries, John Stott writes, the command not to judge is not a requirement to be blind, but a plea to be generous. It's not a requirement to be blind, but a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to disregard sin altogether, but to renounce our own presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as the judge. See, you and I, we do not determine what is right and wrong, nor do we pronounce final judgment on anyone. Only God does that. He alone has that authority. That's, for our, that's good news for us as well because we'd be horrifically terrible judges. Spurgeon says this, though. The saints are not judges, but the saints are not simpletons either. The judge is not the only one who understands what is right and wrong. So we've examined Jesus' words here and what he meant about when it says, do not judge. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he doesn't just say that we shouldn't be judgmental he says, he goes on to highlight what causes our judgmental attitudes and what causes our hypocrisy. And he says, we're blind to the magnitude of our own sin and our own need for grace. You see, it is a failure to acknowledge our own sin and our own needs for grace. That's the source of judgmental attitudes and hypocritical actions towards others. Verses three and four. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? It's like a humorous picture, right? Jesus is like, it's like so over the top. He's just trying to like be incredibly clear about it. How can you say, take the speck out of your eye when you're walking around with a plank roaming around in your own? You hypocrite, he says. See, the problem is that we're either blind to our own sin, we ignore it, or most likely we are consumed by self-righteousness. See, instead of comparing our lives to Jesus's for the standard of living, we just compare them to other people. I'm not as bad as this person. At least I didn't do da, 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 da. This person's, man, they've done a whole lot worse than I have. What happens is that attitude causes us to value others less. It causes us to look down our long nose of self, self-righteousness at others and think, hmm, it's a good thing I'm not as bad as them. 
It's our way of lifting ourselves up by putting others down. Which is, is so striking to me. And just in the previous verses, in talking about worry, Jesus has said, you value yourself too low. You don't know how much you mean to God, and it causes you to worry. And here he's saying, be careful not to value yourself too highly, because you will despise others. Jesus' words, they further indict our judgmentalism because what he points out is that if we were really concerned about right and wrong, then we'd deal with it in our own hearts first, but we don't. See, one of the best examples of this in the Bible is the story of King David, right? King David steals another man's wife and has her husband killed, so he's guilty of adultery and murder. Big deal things, right? That would be on the list of things you'd be like, don't want to live next to that guy, right? So Nathan the prophet, he comes to, to King David, and instead of confronting David outright, he tells this story about a, a poor farmer who has one little lamb, and the lamb is stolen by a rich and powerful neighbor with a large flock of his own. And ironically here, David, the king of all of Israel, ironically, he gets very angry, and he asks, who is this wicked farmer. And Nathan turns to me and says, the farmer is you. Somehow King David had been unconscious of the plank in his own eye as he fumed over the speck of sawdust in the evil farmers. We think, David, you hypocritical fool. How, that's so ridiculous. How could you have done that? Until God gracious reminds us that we're not any different than this week in small group, we read about the story of the crucifixion in John 19, and there was a, a part that I hadn't noticed before where Pilate is talking to the religious leaders, and he asks them, here's your king, talking about Jesus, do you want me to crucify your king? And it says that they shouted back at Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And I just immediately thought, you idiots. You fools, don't you realize what you've just said? Even if you don't think that Jesus is of God, you've just rejected God altogether. How, how could you say that? And I sat in that angst for a while. And as we began to discuss the passage, maybe you've felt this before, it's the gut check of the Spirit. And I just remember just the, the Spirit's voice, just, just felt like he was just saying to me, yeah, they were wrong. Don't you think you say the same thing all the time? I knew in that moment it was the voice of the Spirit because it wasn't about guilt, it wasn't about shame, but it was a sober-minded acknowledgement of the truth. I don't yell back to Pilate, I have no king but Caesar, but I yell to God's face, I have no king but comfort all the time. When I worship my own comfort and my own desires and I reject God's good kingly rule and authority, that's what I'm yelling at God's face. I have no king but my own. I want to reject God's rule and I want to reject his authority. I want to be the king. I want life to be centered around me. We all want that. It was in that moment I just felt like the gracious voice of the spirit coming in. Jesus died for the rebellious hearts of those religious leaders of his day. The ones who shouted crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And he died for my rebellious heart as well. 
see, I needed forgiveness just as much as those evil religious leaders, just as the ones who sent Jesus to his brutal death. I sent him to his death. My rebellious sin and my rejection of his leadership and his authority, that's why he went to the cross. See, Jesus is the judge who set me free. That's what enables me to love and have compassion for others who do not see Jesus that way yet. To avoid condemnation when people's lives are not in line with God's word or his will. You see, when the passage says that there's a plank in your own eye and a speck in your brother's, he's not saying that your sin is bigger than your brother's. He's saying it's about perspective. He's saying that to you, your issues and your sins should be exponentially bigger than the speck in your brother's eye. It's about perspective. When we see our sin as huge and the magnitude of God's grace it took to cover it, then we'll be free from judgmentalism. Moreover, we will be full of compassion. You see, the log, the plank, the speck of sawdust, they're made out of the same thing. They're both wood. All of us are sinners. We should know how much sin hurts. But too often because of our self-righteousness, we like to remember the sins we don't struggle with and forget the ones we do. And the reason that we blame others or that we like to do that, the reason we like to focus on the, the wrongs of others and not the wrongs of ourselves is because we cannot handle the weight of our own guilt and we know it. We're looking for someone else to take our place, someone else to bear the burden of the guilt we are so clearly feeling for our wrongs. And there's only one who can, and there's only one who did. His name is Jesus. He was our atoning sacrifice. He is the one who could bear the weight of the burden of our sinful, mutinous rebellion. And he did. And so for citizens of God's kingdom, the king's already declared us to be both guilty and forgiven. And so we've got to hold these true truths in combination that we are more sinful and more rebellious than we could ever understand and we are more deeply loved and more secure than we could ever hope for. It's only from this place that we'll be able to join Jesus in the redemptive work that he's doing in our lives and through us in the lives of others. You see, this passage ruthlessly attacks judgmental attitudes and it condemns hypocrisy, but it does not deny that sin is present. The speck of sawdust in the patient's eye does need removal. Jesus doesn't just say, you've got your own sin, you've got your own junk, so back off. He says, no, in order for you to draw near, in order for you to actually love someone, in order for you to actually help them and be for their good, you've got to deal with your own sin first. It's only then, after you've removed the plank from your own eye, that you'll be able to see clearly your brothers and you will have compassion for him. See, the passage doesn't stop at you hypocrite. It goes on, it says, first take the plank out of your own eye then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. 
Jesus' words don't call us to blindness or disengagement from the world or sin in our lives or lives of others. Instead, it leads us to lead in those conversations out of a place of humility that comes from recognizing our own need for grace. Jesus isn't saying, don't address the issues you see in the lives of others. He's rather saying, to do it, you've got to deal with your own heart first. He's showing us how. You see, when we see the magnitude of our own sin and how much grace we needed, what it produces in us is a humble and compassionate and discerning care and love for the good of others. Having a humble and compassionate heart towards others doesn't lead to passivity or standing by or just approval of sin, but instead it calls us graciously to interact and engage with people regarding the things that are really are hurting them. A speck in your eye is small, but it still really hurts. I have had entire days ruined by a stray eyelash that is like fighting getting out of my eye, like my kids fight getting out of the bathtub, right? Like, they, it's just like, I want to stay in. And it's just like ruining my day. There's just like, my eyes red. There's just tears coming down, right? Imagine if I just left it in. That'd be, that would be terrible. John Stott writes, In all our attitudes and our behavior towards others, we are neither to play the judge nor the hypocrite, but the loving brother. Correcting others, but not as a foe, not as an adversary exacting penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. As you love people, as you do it graciously, it moves you towards compassion and pursuit of their good. If you really love someone, you will long for their good and for their redeeming work in God, God's redeeming work in their lives. The problem is, is we just like to identify sin. We don't like to help fix it because that's messy and it's hard. And it requires us to acknowledge our own sin, which we don't like to do. You see, in order for us to draw near to actually help, We've got to deal with the own sin, with our own sin. And I'm so thankful for uh, the friends and family in my own life who have called out sin in mine, who have graciously and lovingly had the hard conversations with me that says, I love you, man, but what you're doing is, is wrong. Those moments, I don't look back fondly on those moments and think, wow, that felt great. But I do look back at my life and see how Worse, how much worse it would have been without their love and correction. Jesus says if we love people, we've got to step into their lives to say, because I love you, I've got to address the issues that are going on in your lives because they're going to harm you. And one pastor has a sermon I listened to this week. He just, just, man, this just stuck out to me. He said, Jesus loves us enough to call us into redemption, not to tolerate us where we're at. Jesus loves us enough to call us into redemption, not just to tolerate us where we're at. Just because someone doesn't think their actions are hurting them or or they welcome sin into their life doesn't mean it's not hurting them or it isn't wrong. Some people just like pain or some people feel that they deserve it. Long-distance runners, for example, the people that invented Microsoft Excel, right? Those people are just gluttons for punishment, right? But Jesus is not calling us to act as judges who condemn, nor is he acting a, uh, calling us um, to act as hypocrites, but rather to be compassionate doctors who can diagnose the problems we see and help others to heal. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
And he just so helpfully writes, there is no organ that is more sensitive than the eye. The moment a finger touches it, it closes up. It is so delicate. Transfer all of that into the spiritual realm. You're going to handle the soul of someone else. You're going to touch the thing that is most sensitive in another. You must be careful. You must be careful. Before we wrap up our study of this passage, it's important that we note verse 6. Because let's be honest, it's a little confusing, right? But it's really important as we join Jesus in the redeeming work that he's doing in us. Verse 6, don't give to dogs what's sacred. Don't throw to pearls to pigs. If you do, they might trample them under feet and turn to tear you to pieces. Jesus is not naively blind or naively optimistic. He realizes that what he's calling us to in these passages is difficult. To lead in hard conversations out of humility and compassion, it requires a vulnerable heart and it requires a humility that is open and honest and that can be dangerous. In verse 6, Jesus gives us some caution and he puts up some guardrails for us on his commands. Jesus says that he knows that there are people who will take your vulnerability and they will harm you with it. There are people who are unsafe, who won't hear what you have to say, but instead will turn and use it against you. Jesus is not calling us to be used or abused for the sake of the gospel here. See, there are people who are not looking for redemption. They're not looking for hope. They're not looking for healing. Just like pigs are not looking to eat pearls, and if you throw them at them, they're going to be mad. Just like a dog has no idea what's valuable and right, my dog will chew anything you give him or anything he can find. Because of the pain in their past, or for many other reasons, they are not ready to receive those correcting words. And they just want acceptance or affirmation or approval. They don't want to see the places of sin or brokenness, the places that need repentance, the places that need redemption. No matter how loving, no matter how gracious, no matter how humble you are, not everyone is grateful for correction for their good. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man and he will love you. Jesus is saying to be careful, but let's not over caution Jesus. Remember, there's five verses that, that warn us of judgmentalism. There's only one that warns us to be careful. Let's take that ratio into effect. See, I think what can happen is that we just like to write people off forever. But man, aren't there people that God's redeemed and and renewed out of the most, like, tr- just crazy of situations. The Apostle Paul was murdering Christians, and he wrote half the Bible. Hannah's younger brother came out to uh, the family as gay in high school, and Hannah and I really tried to love and care for Zach over the course of probably four years or so. We really tried in real, authentic ways to love him and care for him, to show him that we really deeply loved him and cared for his good. And the whole extended family didn't, didn't take that same approach. And that was really hurtful for Zach. After some time, this is years of just faithfully being in his life and loving him well and being concerned about him and just, just caring for him as a, as a brother and as our friend. He asked us what we, what we thought about what the family had said, and he asked us what we thought about just the decisions that he had made. And, and we were honest. 
when we articulated that, we believe that the Bible is really clear that, that all sexual relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman are outside the bounds of God's design for that. But we made sure that when we communicated that, we, we did it in a way that just proved him, we love you. We're not condemning you. But you asked us to, you asked us to say what we think and what we believe is true. And we've shown you with our lives over the past years that we really do love you. We're not just saying that. You know that's true. The rest of the, the family, like I said, didn't, didn't take that approach. And because of those actions, I think, um, whether right or wrong, um, they're just really hurtful towards Zach and caused him to reject the whole family as a whole. He told uh, everyone together that we were just being judgmental and that he was done with us. And he walked out of our lives well, more than four years ago. Yeah, I just feel like I've spent a lot of time praying for Zach this week. Man, I, I would long for that relationship to be restored. And while I don't think it was our fault that, that he walked out of our lives, I can guarantee you we made mistakes in that relationship because we make mistakes in every relationship. God's redemptive and restorative work, no one is too far from that. All of us, none of us have made decisions which prohibit us from his redeeming power problem is, is that oftentimes we look at other people and think, oh, they're too far gone. And what we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of our own sin and our own rebellion. And Jesus is like just magnificent and overcoming work to redeem and renew us. You see, freedom from judgmentalism comes when we see the magnitude of our own sin and our need for grace. Because when we see that, it produces in us a humble and compassionate, discerning care for the good of others. We've got to ask God to keep showing that to us so that he would keep ongoingly producing in us a compassionate heart for the good of others. See, the God of Scripture is, is one who says, I love you and I am for you. But he also says, the way you're living is out of bounds. He's gracious and good and not condemning. Instead, he comes near in order to set us free. I think about in John 8, the story of the, the woman at the, the woman who's caught in adultery and there's a crowd of religious people who surround her with rocks about to stone her and Jesus asks them, who among you is without sin? You throw the first stone. And they walk away, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, everyone else has their own problems. You do too, everything's fine. No, he says to the woman, do you see who's, who's condemning you? Neither do I. But he goes on, he says, leave your life of sin. You, we can't keep living the way that we have been. The gospel has to be at work in changing us. Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. He calls us into redemption. As citizens of his kingdom, He's calling us to join him in that redeeming work in the lives of others and in our world. But in order for us to do that, we've got to first wrestle with our own sin and 
allow God to produce in us graciously compassionate hearts that, that really actually love others. Where's God's word challenging your heart this morning? Is there a relationship that you need to mend? Maybe with apology or humility for the words or actions that you've said or done in the past? Maybe you acted as a judge instead of a loving brother. Maybe there's a relationship you need to speak up in and there's sin in a friend's life that is hurting them. Maybe they realize it or maybe they don't. Maybe you've been disengaged out of fear of being judgmental, but you sense God asking you to speak up and what you need to do is ask him to give you a heart of humility and compassion by showing you how much you needed him first. Or maybe someone's come to you and you thought that they were being judgmental about you. And maybe they were. Or maybe God was graciously sending them into your life because he's longing to lovingly correct you and bring about redemption in your heart. What might God be wanting to redeem and renew in you that is using someone else to do? See, the gospel enables us to respond in all of these ways because we can acknowledge our sin and we can acknowledge its effects against others because Jesus died for it and we are guilty, but we're forgiven. And we can be compassionate and still hold firm to our convictions because we've been redeemed and called to join Jesus in his redeeming work. We are all sinners who need God's redemption and so we can offer it freely and receive it freely. Jesus looked at our sin, he looked at our lives, and he judged us to be out of bounds. He judged us all to be in the wrong. And then he paid for it. Then he paid for it with his own blood. That's what we remember at communion. Our sin deserved death, and Jesus died for it. He died for us. And so when we take communion, let's remember our sin and let's remember our great Savior and ask that God would set our hearts free from judgmentalism and also that he would commission us into the redemptive work that he is doing in our lives and in the lives of others. That he would cause us to really love and have compassion for the good of others and so engage with them in their lives in real ways that we would do it for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Ah, King Jesus, we just... God, we are all judgmental hypocrites. We are so guilty of what we condemn others of. God, have mercy on us. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus that you might. God, we just, God, we just want to come with humble, contrite hearts. God, not puffed up or unaware, but or self-righteous, but humble, made humble by you. Because you've shown us and reminded us how much that we needed you, and you've shown us how much you came to meet our need. Jesus, free our hearts from judgmentalism and commission us into the work of redemption in, in the lives of others and in our own as well. God, don't, don't allow us to be blind or to be disengaged from the world around us, but help us to be compassionate as we engage it for you. 
God, that, that's just only possible if you cause us to treasure you and treasure the gospel and see you as the judge and not ourselves. Gracious and loving and good judge who instead of condemning offers freedom. Help us see you that way and offer you that way to others. Amen.